Welcome to the JIMD podcast, the official companion podcast of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease and its sister journal, the online-only, all-open-access JIMD Reports. JIMD Reports articles are made freely available to read, download and share immediately on publication and also appear in a bi-monthly collection. Find JIMD Reports via a search engine or using the Wiley Online Library app to have all your articles with you on the go. Why not download the app now while you listen to our latest episode on treatment in alcaptonuria. Hello there. It's always a treat to revisit topics and a pleasure when I get to welcome back guests, not least because it means they didn't hate it the first time around. The first time I spoke with Professor Ranganath, I called the podcast Everything About Alcaptonuria, but that was a little premature. So it's great to be able to correct this oversight and to have a focus on treatment this time around. Alongside Professor Ranganath, I have his co-author, collaborator and co-founder of the AKU Society, Dr. Nick Siru. Nick, welcome to the podcast. And Ranga, welcome back. Hello. Uh, good, good to be back. And uh, Nick, I'm, I'm glad that you could join us. You're a parent of two sons with our Captain Uria. You're the CEO of the AKU Society and you're now a published author on research papers. You, you really must be living and breathing our Captain Uria. Yeah, I mean, well, to be honest, it's been part of my life now for uh, more than 21 years since our first son was diagnosed at the end of 2000. But I'm particularly in the past 13 years when um, a lot of the research has been really taking off. I mean, it's been absolutely central to what I'm trying to do. I know one of the, your big passions is about um, getting people access to natisinone, which is kind of what we're going to talk about today. We've talked a bit about nitisinone before. Um, I wonder if you just briefly could tell me about the AKU Society, how it came about and what you're what you're trying to do? Sure. So the AKU Society was formed by uh, Ranga and also by a patient uh, called Bob Gregory, who very sadly is no longer with us. And Bob was a patient uh, living in Liverpool. And about 20 years ago, uh, he approached Ranga and asked him if he would help him set up uh, an AKU society. So even though Alcaptonuria has been known now at least more than 120 years, there was no society at the beginning of the 21st century, which is actually quite astounding. And I was in touch with Bob at the time because my uh, children had just been diagnosed and I was asking him for advice. And so he also invited me and some other people uh, to join. And that's when the AKU society was set up. And at the core, it has always been about getting a treatment to the patients, uh, supporting the patients and really delivering some kind of groundbreaking research uh, so that people with this devastating rare disease don't have to live with all the pain and the suffering for the rest of their lives. And you've mentioned research there. There are two papers from JMD reports that have led to this sort of podcast reunion with Ranga, one of which is looking at nitisinone dosing and the other one looking at the impact of protein restriction in AKU. Um, both these papers come on the back of the SONIA 2 study, what was Sonia too, and is it fair to say it's named after a Liverpudlian singer? <laughs> There's a Sonia S O N I A uh, is suitability of nitisinone in alcaptonuria, and there were two Sonia studies. There was Sonia one, which was a phase two dose finding study, and Sonia two, which was a phase three. Uh, clinical efficacy study. And these were absolutely crucial. I mean, we heard the other day 
that the Sonia 2 study, which was on 138 patients across Europe and the Middle East, is the biggest ever study of an inborn error of metabolism to happen. So it's quite groundbreaking. And I think it's quite right, really, that AKU, which was the first disease ever shown to be inherited, also have that place. Um, and nitisanone is the drug that we've been working on. Uh, Ranga led all the studies on nitisanone incredibly successfully. And it wasn't easy because um, about 15 years ago, the NIH in the States was studying nitisanone and they did a study and their study failed because it wasn't on enough patients, you know, wasn't looking at the right endpoints and all that. And Ranga and his team managed to learn from this and to develop a kind of clinical study design, which just has changed everything for AKU patients because the study was successful. The drug has been approved by the European Medicines Agency, which is amazing. And it's now accessible to patients across Europe. So it's absolutely fantastic. And it hasn't been easy to accomplish that because whilst the regulatory process is all centred in Europe and also at the time the UK was part of it, um, the whole HTA process is a bit of a shambles, to be honest. Every country does their own thing. They don't necessarily understand the disease. They have other considerations to take in place. But overall, it's been successful and we're really pleased about that. I mean, you say it's been very successful, but one of the papers looks at uh, protein restriction, which but the Sonia study itself didn't necessarily advise protein restriction. So is protein restriction a necessary part of our captain neuromanagement or is it just in the context of patients on nitisinone treatment? Uh, it's for patients on nitisinone treatment, but I'll hand over to Ranga because uh, he's the expert on this and uh, the one who's been developing the guidelines. Thank you, Nick. I think you explained the Sonia studies really well there. The Sonia 2 study was a challenge because these were patients from across Europe with different languages, different habits, and would have been impossible for this large number of patients to have an active dietetic plan to manage the tyrosine levels as we went along. So Sonia 2 basically was a study where we didn't intervene in terms of active dietary management. The patients were given some dietary advice about how to reduce the amount of protein in the diet so that they could stay in the study for longer. And basically, we were just reinforcing that message each time the patients came to the trial center. And that was the protein restriction that we used. And if you really think back to why did we use protein restriction, we used it primarily to decrease the possible side effects of high tyrosine, such as keratopathy. We had three clinical sites. We had Paris, we had a Pishtani in Slovakia, and we had Liverpool in the UK. And in the Liverpool, we had mostly people from overseas because we couldn't recruit any UK patients into the study because they were already coming to the National Archive Center to receive nutritionals. So we couldn't ethically take the chance of them going on to the no treatment zone. So and because of the language issues, I suspect we probably have the least success in terms of protein restriction of the three sites. Uh, we asked them to cut back a little bit on the diet. We gave them information in form of dietary treats as to which were the um, high calcium rich foods and to avoid those if possible, and to eat a little bit less protein generally. So that was the extent of the protein restriction. Uh, Paris had the best, and of course, I think they also used a dietitian reinforced advice at every visit. So there's a little bit of difference in the way the diet was carried out in the three sites. And the UK had the least change in terms of dietary protein, as we assessed it by means of urinary urea, 24-hour excretion. Uh, and we had the most keratopathy. Out of the 10, six were from UK, from Liverpool side. There were three from 
Pistani in Slovakia, and there was one from Paris. I know in AKU people have used protein restriction as a way of dealing with the disease, and it's not been very successful. I mean, even the New England Journal of Medicine paper, I think it was 2002, also failed to find any effect of diet uh, in terms of modifying AKU. And we found the same in a previous publication where we didn't find any effect of protein restriction on AKU itself. So you're saying that for patients pre-natisinone, there is no value in reducing protein? Yeah, we didn't find any value and others have also not found any value. In other words, we are saying that you have to really squeeze down the protein so low that you have other problems such as malnutrition, social isolation, affecting your growth, all kinds of things. And so unless you do that, you're not going to squeeze down the um, alpha process just by dietary protein alone. But if you're b- before the patient's free nitis, I know that there's no value. That, that's true. I mean, you have to remember that we based our study design on the NIH clinical trial. And the NIH clinical trial also didn't use any protein restriction. So basically their patients ate what they wanted for three years. And they used a lower dose, two milligrams, and they had a single case of keratopathy in their experience. In the Sonia 2, it was different because we used 10 milligrams of metisinone. And again, we didn't use any active dietary management, even though we encouraged them to decrease the dietary protein. And we had 10 patients who experienced keratopathy. So there's a little bit of a difference there between, between the two. And the keratopathy, how significant is that? Uh, the keratopathy is a problem for patients because they get a painful eye. It's tearful, blurred vision is an issue, and they get a red eye. So those are all the features of keratopathy. The great news about that is it's temporary. So as soon as you recognize the problem, you stop taking the drug. Within two weeks, you're back to normal. So it is not an irreversible problem. Okay, so it's manageable, but it's obviously a concern, and it brought about this need for the suggested protein reduction. So in the National Centre, we have a dietitian who takes seven-day's food diaries, who also checks blood forks and blood samples for serum tyrosine. And so that is a very rigorous tyrosine management plan. And we have thresholds there, just like you have in the paediatric practice of PAU. So if the serum tyrosine is less than 500 and the protein intake is about one gram per kilogram body weight, and we think that's fine, we don't need to do anything more. So if the serum tyrosine is higher than 500 and under 700, then we decrease the protein intake to about 0.9 grams per kilogram body weight. And if it's 700 to 900, then it becomes 0.8 milligrams protein per kilogram body weight. Uh, and if it's over 900, then of course we start to think about uh, tyrosine and phenylalanine free amino acid supplements and so on. So, one of the downsides of approaching the serum tyrosine management through protein restriction is that you're really squeezing down not just on phenylalanine and tyrosine, but on all the other amino acids that you need as well. And one of the major things about protein is it's highly satiating. So, what we found in Sonia 2 is really quite effective decrease in protein intake, even though these were not patients who were actively supervised, about 15, 20% decrease in protein intake based on the urine urea. What's really interesting about this is, even though they decreased the protein intake, their weights went up. And we think the weight went up because of the 
satiation effect. If you eat less protein, you eat more of the other things. We think that's probably the mechanism by which this has happened. And this is important, not just for AKU. I mean, if you think of inborn aerosol metabolism in children, this is a common approach, decreasing the amount of protein intake. So I suspect these findings would be applicable to other inborn aerosol metabolism, especially a protein. It's a big worry in things like PKU, where the the low protein foods these children get are typically going to be much higher in fat and, and carbohydrates. Yeah, exactly. I noted that when the patients did develop their eye side effects, you'd recommend reducing their natizinone um, dose to two milligrams a day. So obviously the other paper is particularly pertinent as it compares the efficacy of two milligram and 10 milligram doses. You used a statistical modeling approach to compare the doses because it obviously wasn't the initial goal of the study. Uh, how does that even work? We were very lucky because in AKU we had two different cohorts where we used two milligrams in the National Center and we have used 10 milligrams in the Sonia 2 clinical trial. And it's not just about decreasing homogenic acid. We really want to see an effect on the disease process itself. We want to show that it's modifying the disease. Otherwise, what's the point taking it? Uh, and we have a unique way of monitoring AKU disease, and that by using something called the Alcaptinuria severity score index, or ACUSI. And this ACUSI tells us about AKU globally in a person. AKU is a multi-system disease. It affects the spine, the joints, tendons, ligaments, the heart, kidney stones, prostate stones. So in order to follow this multi-system disease, we've come up with the multi-system assessment strategy, which is the ACUSI. So by monitoring ACUSI progression over time, we can tell whether AKU is worsening or staying the same or progressing less than previously. So we can tell that. And this is what we've used both in the NSE and in the SONIA2 to assess how known affect the disease process. And the interesting thing about that is when we plotted the data on the NSE and the SONIA2 over four years, it's almost a straight line, both before nitrosinone and after nitrosinone. So that gave me an idea to go back and seek the help of our statistician friends to see whether they could, by statistical means, extrapolate the curves to find the time when the score was zero, because that really gives us the age when the score was zero, possibly the starting point of the disease taking hold. And when we did that, we got roughly around 36 years for the NSE and about 23 years for the SONIA2 when the AK the score index accuracy was zero. And if you started the drug at that time, rather than much later on in life as we did, by assuming that the slope would stay the same, we found that there was about 25 years slowing of progression in the NSC compared to its own control. And there was about 100 years slowing of AKU with the 10 milligram compared to its own control. And that's quite a substantial difference between the two. I don't think it will ever be possible to do this kind of study comparing those. It's just not possible. So I think it persuades me even more that aiming for a higher dose is the right thing to do, especially in patients where the disease has taken hold. We don't know what to do or what the best dose will be if you're, say, 16, when there are no real features of AKU, 
the disease has to be taken whole. Perhaps at that age, you don't need that much. You probably need less. But again, we don't have any data to back this up. So this is just a gut instinct. Right. And again, it's something else I want to talk to you about. So we'll ask that later on. I just wanted to briefly come back to something else that came up in that paper, which is that you noted that uh, nitisinone may inhibit cytochrome P450 catabolism. And is, is that relevant for patients? Is that something else they need to be mindful around? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, it is. For example, I think things like anticoagulant effect can be potentiated if you're on nitisinone. Uh, the answer to that is fairly simple. So long as you monitor in terms of your INR or whatever it is that you're measuring in terms of the clotting, then it's just a question of titration of the dose. And the same thing for other things like anti-diabetic drugs, the anti-hypertensive drugs, which are also affected by the cytochrome P450 inhibition, which means the levels are higher for a given dose. You just need to decrease the dose of those drugs. But what it requires is an awareness and the possibility and tackling that uh, in real time. Now, one of the interesting things that came up there was the nitrogen inhibits its own degradation over time. So actually, the levels of nitrogen went up at the year three and year four, quite substantially, about 30%, 40% higher than at baseline. And does, does that mean you reduce your nitrogen dose over time? I don't think this, that necessarily follows, because if you look at the paper, what we actually found was the hormetic acid levels actually went up a little. So it's a bit of a paradox. We think there are other effects as well. So we know that nitrogen does affect the way the hormonal acid and other metabolites are excreted by the kidney. It inhibits that as well. So at the higher dose, even though the nitrogen levels go up, it also inhibits the excretion of hormonal acid and the other organic anions, and therefore it sort of balances itself out. So don't decrease the dose. So it does feel like we're getting close to a sort of comprehensive diagnosis and management guideline. I know we love those in the journal. I'm curious, as as a paediatrician, if I was to see an infant tomorrow who'd been referred with dark urine, what advice would I be giving a family? This is a really important question because one of the things that hasn't happened so far in the paediatric practice is a systematic plan to manage AKU patients. This is why they come later on in life with advanced AKU. I think the first thing to do is to follow them up yearly. Second thing is I would love to be able to start nitrogen at that age, but I think when you run into the problem of the cognitive effect of nitrogen due to the high tyrosine that people are seeing heterotyrosinemia type 1. So I, I think until we know more, I don't think it is advisable to start treating children with nitrogen, especially since the disease doesn't take hold until much later on in life. So this is the reason why in the NAC, the National Archive Center in the UK, we see patients from the age of 16 onwards when children are labeled adults and they come to the National Center. So some of the youngest patients, for example, these children started their nutrition at the age of 16, and they have been fine. There are no problems at all with cognition. In fact, we've also published another recent paper on our seven-year experience of cognitive side of things on nitrogen in the NAC. And it's been absolutely fine. We haven't found any evidence of problems towards that. So in terms of what to do about children, I think you should ensure good hydration because there's a lot of homogenic acid coming out in untreated children. And especially in hot summers, I think you want to drink plenty so that you minimize the risk of kidney stones. The second thing is you need to monitor them for complications as you go along, including kidney stones. I think if somebody goes on vitamin C, there's even slightly higher risk because vitamin C comes out in the urine. Complications monitoring on an annual basis is important. Uh, and I, I think more importantly also, 
is to think about the kind of physical activity that would be suitable for a person with AKU, given the joints in the spine are huge targets. So I think sensible physical activity is important, but at the moment, the evidence base isn't that great in terms of what to advise. So we tell them the cycling is okay. You know, walking is good exercise. Swimming is a great exercise. High contact sports are probably not a great idea. And also thinking about the hobbies and jobs and all of those things, because we've had patients who had problems with their jobs because they have not been able to stand giving a lecture for any length of time and they've had to retire early. So advise on what kind of things might be most suitable in terms of hobbies, sports, jobs. All of these things, I think, are things you can think about during the pediatric age. So triathlons and not rugby, plenty of fluids. And then on the nitisinone at 16. Yeah. Well, we haven't got any plans to do a study of nitisinone in children at the moment because it's irreversible. If you give nitisinone to children without knowing a little bit more about it and you cause learning difficulties and brain damage, it's irreversible. So there is an ethical issue here. We thought what would be more important is to try and get a bit more evidence on the natural history of AKU progression in childhood, because there's no such study at the moment. And Nick may want to say something about that now, because we are in the stages of planning a pediatric study. Yes. So, James, so it's called Sophia Pediatric, which is uh, similar to the Sophia study we did as part of the whole Developer Cure program, which was to find out at what age really the ochronosis starts. And uh, this is uh, happening in the UK. Uh, we have Birmingham Children's Hospital that is coordinating it with funding from the AKU Society. So we raised funds from a number of trusts and foundations. But also last year, we did a BBC Radio 4 appeal that was very successful. And that raised around £30,000 to go towards this. Uh, so it'll be really looking at children with AKU over the age of five and trying to uh, understand really if we can see at what age the ochronosis starts, because that will obviously give us a better indication of at what age we need to start treating with nitisinone. Um, so my, my children started around age of 16, 17, both of them, going to the National AKU Centre, and it's going really well. You know, we are really pleased. I mean, obviously, the National AKU Centre is absolutely fantastic. In April, it'll be 10 years since uh, Ranga set up the National AKU Centre in Liverpool, and it has transformed the care of AKU patients because before the National Centre there was well they were basically being being pushed around from one appointment to the next and never knowing what would happen but now people have access to nitisinone and so we're really pleased with that and clearly if the children's study shows that ochronosis starts earlier uh, then we need to think quite seriously about whether to treat with nitisinone at that age. And how do you look for the ochronosis? I mean I appreciate you can see it in ears and eyes. Well there's a whole battery of techniques but I'll hand back to Ranga because he's the one who's designed the study. Thank you Nick. We are looking at the eye and ear really because you can take digital photographs and you can pour over them and score them later on quite reliably, really, rather than doing it in real time while you're seeing the children. The, the other thing we're doing is we're using something called Raman spectroscopy. In the SOFIA study in adults, we did an ear cartilage biopsy to see whether there's ochronosis, even though we didn't see any color change in the ear. And of course, it's more difficult to do in children and also we found that the ear biopsy is not reliable because it's patchy and you don't really know whether you're hitting the right place to get the maximum pigment. 
So for all those reasons, we're doing a different thing called Raman spectroscopy. Spectroscopy is a common technique used to follow colors. And we are planning on doing this in London. So children will go to the National Orthopedic Hospital in London, uh, where they will have this Raman spectroscopy of their tendons, the Achilles tendon, a site where there's a lot of optonosis and Achilles tendon ruptures are not uncommon in AKE. So those are the three things we're using in terms of the optonosis. But we're also looking at change in structure. For example, we're doing x-rays of the spine. We're doing an MRI of the spine at the start, at baseline, and five years later. So the Sophia Pediatric is a prospective study. So we're going to be seeing the children every year. At each year, we're going to be doing the photographs of blood and urines and questionnaires. But at the start and at the end, we're going to be doing the Raman spectroscopy, the X-ray and the MRI. And we're also doing another thing called gait analysis. So gait analysis is fairly non-invasive, but it gives us a very good idea of functional changes in gait. And from the NSE data, we are seeing changes in gait even at the age of 16. So even Nick's children had gait, which is not entirely consistent with the normal 16-year-old. So this is the reason why we've tagged the tone into the Sophia Pediatric. So the Sophia Pediatric will be quite informative. It'll give us an idea when the optonosis actually takes hold. Uh, and we are hoping also to identify biomarkers if, if there are any in the blood and urine. So we've got Nordic Biosciences in Copenhagen. We're going to be looking at cartilage, bone, and tendon biomarkers to see if, if there's any signal there that we can use. Uh, so th those are the kind of things that we're going to be doing in Sophia Pediatric. So we aim to recruit about 15 children, and they will be between five years and less than 16 and they'll be followed for five years. So that, that's the plan. Sounds very exciting. Um, and I mean, I, I feel like I could talk to you guys um, about our clubs in your ear, you know, indefinitely, but I'm, I'm mindful of the time. I know that Nick's got to get away. So I just want to say um, thank you both to, to Ranga for coming back and for Nick for joining us for the first time. It's been a pleasure chatting with you this morning. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you very Great, much. Thanks very much, thanks James. Thanks for having us. And if you'd like to read those papers, they both can be found in the January collection from JMD Reports, which is accessible via the links in the podcast description or on the JMD Reports website. And if you'd like to um, hear more from us, including the um, increasingly misnamed Everything About Our Captain Uria episode we recorded last year, um, then do search for JMD Podcast wherever you like to listen. Uh, until next time, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.